I can't believe it. I'm going to have to marry him. (laughs) (laughs) My husband won't mind. Hello world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to a special presentation of the Pop Culture Preservation Society, in which we rebroadcast someone else's podcast in order to show you more about how our podcast came to be. In episode one, we told you that Sean Cassidy was one of our inspirations for this adventure. But there's actually more to the story than what we told you in episode one. He plays an important role in today's rebroadcast, which was recorded long before the PCPS was a thing. David Peterkovsky is the host of the For Keeps podcast. With a blend of curiosity, history, and humor, For Keeps explores the things we collect and why we do it in the first place. David contacted Kristen because of a social media project she created called My Celebrity Crush Story. He thought she might be able to connect him with a good subject for his show in the form of a collector of teen idol memorabilia. But instead of taking her suggestions, he said, I think I should interview you instead. The result is the interview you'll hear today called 1970s Records and Celebrity Crush Stories with Kristen Nielsen. It aired on Valentine's Day 2020 and went on to become the most popular Four Keeps episode of the entire year. At the end, David surprises Kristen with a gift, two gifts actually, that will knock your socks off. And you'll see how Sean Cassidy may have given birth to our second careers as podcasters. Here's episode 49 of the Four Keeps podcast. Enjoy. This is For Keeps, a podcast about collections and connections. I'm David Peterkovsky. This is a collector's story with a potent mix of happiness-inducing ingredients. It's got music, nostalgia, and most importantly, a celebration of young love in the form of the crush, which the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines as an intense and usually passing fascination. A childhood crush can be intense, all right, but that part about it being a passing fascination is debatable. Do crushes from our youth just evaporate, or do they linger on at a deeper level and help shape who we become as adults? To explore that question, we'll need to consult an expert. So let's get to know Kristen Nilsson. Kristen is a writer and librarian based in Minneapolis, and she's a collector on two different yet very complementary fronts. For one, she's a record collector, but with a specific goal in mind to recollect all the vinyl she once coveted as a child, but later let slip through her hands as times and her tastes changed. Kristen's collection of 250 or so records is focused almost exclusively on the LPs she bought in the latter half of the 1970s. There's plenty of classic stuff in there. The Commodores, Fleetwood Mac, Led Zeppelin, but much of it is the music of the teen idols she obsessed over. Folks like Sean Cassidy, Andy Gibb, The Bee Gees, 
the Osmonds, and even John Travolta, though the term music might be a bit strong to describe his records. Kristen's other collection is a bit more esoteric. For the past year, she's been collecting the teen idol crush stories of other like-minded 70s and 80s kids as part of a social media project she created called My Celebrity Crush Story. Often hilarious and frequently touching, the soul-bearing submissions and corresponding dated photos have gained Kristen a good-sized following on Instagram and Facebook since the project first launched in 2019. But back in the mid-70s, she was just a music-loving kid who set out to start a record collection. And as a preteen girl who had started noticing and even obsessing over male pop stars, her first record purchase couldn't have been more fitting. The first record that I ever bought, seven years old, and I bought it with my own money at Musicland at the Harmar Mall in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was the Monkees' greatest hits. I'll never forget it. <laughs> it was a proud moment because my dad was a musician, so he had a vast record collection. So we spent a lot of time in record stores and he would buy his records. And when I bought my own record, it was sort of like this coming of age thing. Like I was part of the clan now. And did he influence your decision to get the monkeys at all? Oh, no, 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 no. My parents were not really popular music people, but my dad had a deep respect for well, good music in general, whether he liked it or not. And also the fact that I was into something. Like when I was into something, he was excited that I was into something, whether or not he liked it. I remember being at a Shakey's Pizza one time and Take a Chance on Me came on and he heard the harmonies in Take a Chance on Me. And he said, who is this? I said, it's Abba. He said, I'll buy you this record. Well, he had good taste. Yeah, right? The Monkees, of course, were teen idols from the 60s who remained popular thanks to reruns of their TV show. But soon enough, Kristen turned her attention to more contemporary pop idols and even some animated stars of the day. So that moved on to Sean Cassidy, to Andy Gibb, to Alvin and the Chipmunks, because the Alvin and the Chipmunks had some cover albums, right? They had like a Beatles album, and it was a really nice entree into the Beatles, I also listened to a lot of things that were I was a little too old for, but I was kind of catching up. So, for instance, I would collect Partridge Family things, albums, because I still really liked the music, even though the show wasn't really on that much anymore. And I was starting to understand that I really like to look at Keith Partridge. Like, I didn't know what that meant, but I'd like to look at him when he was on the screen. And I liked when he was singing. <laughs> um, so that was the very beginning of the record collecting. And really, because of my age, record collecting didn't last long because the first cassette tape that I bought was the soundtrack to Fame, and that would have been about 1980. So really, what we're looking at is about a five-year period of time where I was collecting records. And then it moved on to cassettes, and then we got CDs, and now we're streaming. That five-year window, as brief as it may have been in retrospect, made a big impact on young Kristen. Even just the other day when I was listening to something, I realized how much easier it is to become emotionally involved with a piece of music or with a performer when you're listening to it on vinyl because it is such a tactile experience. You have to go to your box of records or your shelf and you have to flip through the covers and you visually make a decision based on the cover that you see. Then you pull it out very carefully. Like there's technique in holding onto a record. You don't just grab it with your fist. And then you carefully walk it over to your turntable and you put it on the turntable and then you lower the needle onto it and then you wait. And then in those days, 
listening to a record was really an activity in and of itself, starting with that little procedure, right? Then you might sit down and just listen. You might look at the album cover. You might read all the album notes. You might putter around your room a little bit, but it wasn't background music. You were doing something. Whereas now we mostly listen in our cars and we might turn it on in the house while we're cleaning or while we're doing stuff or while you're walking around or while you're doing schoolwork. It's something that sort of exists in the background. Although Kristen also streams music, like pretty much any other music fan in the 21st century, She's quick to point out the connection between listening to vinyl and, well, appreciating the artist pictured on the album cover. We're not making the same emotional connections, and I think that also lends itself to more easily developing a teen idol crush, right? We had this big album that we looked at. It usually had a beautiful face on the cover, right? God forbid you didn't put the beautiful face on the cover. Why bother? And so you'd sit there and you'd stare at the beautiful face while you listen to the beautiful words and this beautiful voice. Now, what do they look at? I don't know what they look at. So over the course of a side of an album, you fell in love. Totally. Absolutely. Because he was singing right to me in my room. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Which brings us to Kristen's story about Andy Gibb. Younger brother to the Bee Gees, and in the late 70s, a reigning teen idol in his own right, before his untimely passing at age 30 in 1988. In front of a live audience, at a theater in Minneapolis not too long ago, Kristen shared the childhood Christmas story of receiving what was, in her young mind, the wrong Andy Gibb album. Can you share the Andy Gibb album story, just kind of an overview of it? Okay, so when I was 10 years old, Christmas, it was 1978, All I wanted for Christmas that year was Andy Gibb. Andy Gibb was all that I could think about all the time. Shadow Dancing was the number one song. It was the number one album. It would end up being the biggest song of the entire year. So I was just writing the zeitgeist, right? And also my tastes and what I wanted to look at were also changing, right? Like I had fallen in love with Sean Cassie, this sweet little innocent guy. And then I'm maturing a little bit. And I'm going to start staring at Andy Gibb. He's just a little sexier, right? Because he had chest hair. So I'm wanting Andy Gibb. And on Christmas morning, I wake up and I see that there's a 12 by 12 square underneath the Christmas tree. And in those days, I knew that was either a calendar or it was a record album. So I'm like, oh, God, please don't let it be a calendar, right? And when I open it up, I tear off the paper and I'm like, what the hell is this? (laughs) I've never seen this before. disappointed, but I was also really sad because my mom thought she was making my dreams come true, but she just didn't have all the information she needed to get it right. And so I felt sad for her that I was kind of ruining her Christmas moment. And I also had this sort of coming of age pain of knowing that as you grow up, it gets more difficult for your parents to know you completely because you keep so many things to yourself, right? When you start to fall in love with Andy Gibb, you're not going to like run to your mom and say, guess what, mom, I'm going to marry this guy named Andy Gibb and he's 19 and he's from Australia and he's a pop star. You don't say that stuff because it sounds ridiculous. So you keep it to yourself because you know it's ridiculous, but you feel it just the same. 
but this is a Christmas story, so naturally, it has a happy ending. 25 years later, I'm at my parents' house for Christmas. I'm married, I have a child, and we're opening up Christmas presents. There's not a 12 by 12 square under the tree, but there is a 6 by 6 square. And so then I know it's either, given the day, it's either a CD or it's a desk calendar. I'm not thinking I'm going to get an Andy Gibbs CD when I'm 35 years old, right? But I open it up and it's shadow dancing, the one that I wanted in 1978. And I swear to God, in that moment, I got that exact same thrill that I did at 10 years old of hoping I was going to marry Andy Gibb. Even though I'm married and I have a child and Andy Gibb is dead and that's not possible, it's never going to (laughs) happen. But it was just this little revisiting, like this little heart pitter-patter thing that went, (gasps) like I took in a breath. And it was shadow dancing. And my parents, it was like redemption for them. They knew that they had won. They're like, we did it. Now, they didn't know. They had no idea that they had disappointed me in 1978. I just told my mom when I read them that essay. And she was like, oh, that wasn't the right one. I kept it to myself. But they still knew all those years later, he was the thing that made me happy. And they were just hoping that they weren't making fools of themselves. Like, is she going to think this is crazy or is she going to love this? And I loved it. What I like about that story is, first of all, it all comes full circle. Yeah. And also, you now have the perspective and the distance as a mother to know how that gift landed the first time and how much more it meant to you the second time. Oh, absolutely. Right. I think it was last year at Christmas. We had plenty of presents for my kid. He needs for nothing. Right. But I had this little worry that there was nothing under the tree that said to him, I get you. And I jumped in my car and I ran to the store and I came home with three record albums. And it was those three record albums. It was My Chemical Romance. Those were the gifts that made him say at the end of the day, Mom, I think this was my best Christmas ever. Mostly because you didn't give him Andy Gibb. Yes. Oh, God, he's so horrified. He is so horrified. (laughs) So it sounds like, as is often the case with preteen girls, your musical tastes were informed by the young male singers of the day. Is that uh, an understatement, overstatement? I would say it is both true But not limiting, because as much as, yes, I was absolutely in there with the zeitgeist of the day, hook, line, and sinker, I also was exposed to a lot of different things based on, number one, what was on the radio, but also what other people were listening to. Like, you go to a friend's house, and there's always an older brother who's listening to something that's more challenging. And that informs my taste also, because I was into that stuff. It wasn't that it needed to be just accessible music. That wasn't it at all. So really, I would say that my tastes are really far-reaching. The Beatles were something that was introduced to me basically through older brothers. And I remember walking down hallways and hearing the Beatles coming out of older brothers' bedrooms and wanting to go in. And the friend being like, come on, come on, we're going in to play with the Barbie Dreamhouse. And I just wanted to go into the older brothers' room and listen to the Beatles. Who were teen idols in a way as well. Yeah, but at that point, that's not how we consumed them, right? They were revered. They were the band that broke up. They were the band at that point for very serious music lovers. And I didn't understand them as teen idols until much later. Of course, teen idols existed before the 70s. But Kristen's interest in them, both as a collector of records and as a collector of crush stories, is driven by her own experiences and memories of them. 
So there is a dividing line. So how far back in time did you go with your Teen Idol record purchases? Did you venture back to the 50s and 60s? You mentioned the monkeys. You mean in my current collection? Yeah, or even back in the day when you first started collecting. No, I would say it was really timely based on my own experience. It didn't have to be my direct experience, but I don't go much further than like the Osmonds, the Jackson 5. Oh, you know what the dividing point is? Bobby Sherman. Because although I like Bobby Sherman, I don't have any experience with him at all. I don't have any memory of him, but I do remember the Osmonds. I do remember the Jackson 5. I do remember David Cassidy. That's sort of the beginning of it. And the monkeys, of course, get in there because they were in reruns. So I was watching the monkeys every day after school. And we had no knowledge of the fact that this was something that had happened 10 years earlier and that these guys didn't look like this anymore. It's something that we call a time travel crush. Like you're crushing on what you see on the screen, but the thing on the screen no longer exists in that form. We didn't get that. And so that's why the monkeys, even to this day, they have a huge teenage fan base because first you had reruns after school in the 70s. And then in the 80s and the 90s, they were on Nick at Night. And it just keeps on going. They keep getting fans. It's crazy. Yeah, I discovered them in the 80s. They had a big comeback. Yeah, right? And they just keep on going. Even though two of them are dead, right? Like, it's crazy. It's just amazing to me. But it really speaks to how this whole teen idol phenomenon has a certain whiff of unexplainability to it. Like, the heart just wants what it wants. (laughs) So you had this record collection, and it was going strong. What happened to it? So what often happens with teen idols in particular is that When you grow up, and when I say grow up, I don't mean growing into an adult. When you grow up and you're 14, 15, 16, those feelings that you had for that little pop idol, it might look ridiculous now. Now you're starting to understand that the strength of that emotion and wanting to marry somebody that you've never met before, now you're embarrassed by that. And your tastes are more sophisticated and you look down on the music that, you know, came out of the likes of Sean Cassidy and the Partridge family and that kind of thing. You know, you're trying to become an adult. And so when your mom is having the garage sale and she's like, what about these records? You don't listen to these anymore. And you're like, sure, fine. Go ahead. Put them in the garage sale because that's kid stuff now. You're embarrassed by it. And that's a very common thing to be embarrassed by the music that you used to listen to when you were seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Well... That was a mistake. (laughs) I didn't lose all of them, but I lost a good chunk. Part of that chunk was a collection of records she's been especially excited to recollect. Compilation albums put out by KTEL, a company that was known for assembling LPs of the day's most popular hits and advertising them on TV relentlessly. I've systematically tried to repopulate my KTEL album collection also. Were those nationwide? Did you guys have KTEL albums too? Oh, absolutely. I had one called The Beat. Do you have that one? I don't have The Beat. I need that one and I need Hot Nights and City Lights. But otherwise, I've got just about all of them. The <laughs> Beat. Oh, my God. That's so funny. It's original music power. The K-Tel Music Machine with Manfred Vance. Original stars, Andy Gear. KC and the Sunshine Band. Foreigner, Kiss, Rolls Royce, Silvers, Marvin Gaye, and ABBA. The music makes it play. Peter McCann. Powered by all top ten hits, it's KTEL's Music Machine. Do you know how many KTEL albums there are or what your target is there? No, I really should do research on that, but I'm not so analytical as that. It's really about what songs are on the albums and whether or not I had it. So, for instance, Hot Nights and City Lights is 
probably my favorite K-Tail album, and I cannot find it. I cannot find it. Now, I also don't collect online. It's not the holding of the album that is as important as the stumbling upon the album. And so I go to record stores and I look for the things that I want. And if they don't have them, I go home. And then if I'm in a different town and I see they have a record store, I stop in and see if they have what I want. And if they don't, I go home. But I don't hunt online. I don't do that kind of thing. You kind of leave it up to fate. I totally leave it up to fate because a lot of the way that I do it has to do with the time in which it began. So I don't buy an album if I wouldn't have listened to it on vinyl the first time around. I'm not going to buy U2 on vinyl because I wouldn't have listened to U2 on vinyl. I would have maybe had a cassette. Later on, I would have had a CD. I wouldn't have listened to it on vinyl. So I don't listen to it on vinyl now. I would not have bought vinyl online in 1977. So I don't buy it online now. I go to a record store, just like I would in 1977. You take this pretty seriously. Yeah, I really do. And these are not hard and fast rules that I came up with. These are things that I follow based on my gut. And I've looked and then I reflect on them and try and figure out why I do it that way. You know, why is it that I don't collect online? Oh, probably because I didn't buy it that way the first time. And it's so easy. You'd be done in five minutes. I know, I'd be done. I'm sure Hot Nights and City Lights is, you know somebody's garage in Tennessee, but that's not the way I would have bought it the first time. So I let the hunt be going. By the way, great title. (laughs) I know, right? That's so funny. Let's fast forward to your adulthood. And now as a writer, your project, My Celebrity Crush Story, how and when did that come about? Okay. So it's a fledgling account. It started just about six months ago. And it grew out of a book that I wrote called Worldwide Crush. This is a book that is out on submission right now to publishers. And it's a fiction novel for middle grade readers about a girl with a teen idol crush. And this story began, I started out as a creative nonfiction writer. I was not writing fiction until a friend of mine came to me and she said, she was a young adult author, and she said, I want you to write a novel. And I said, I don't write fiction. And she said, I want you to do that anyway. And I just went, okay. (laughs) But I didn't have any idea what to write. I had no story to tell. I only had my own stories to tell. But then I just sort of had this story drop in my lap based on my own experience of having a crush on Sean Cassidy. And so I mined my own experience. I mined it until I came up with a fictional story about it. Kristen's novel has turned out to be a crush calling card of sorts, eliciting interesting responses from people who had similar experiences in their youth, and confirming Kristen's belief that the crush plays a surprisingly key role on the path to adulthood. As happens when you go out into the world and people say, oh, what do you do? And you say, you're a writer. And they say, what do you write? And I say, I just finished a novel. And they ask what it's about. And I say, it's about a seventh grade girl with a teen idol crush. And it's inspired by my own crush on Sean Cassidy. The minute you say that, everybody wants to tell you their crush story. They get very excited to take this little time travel trip. They get excited and they say, oh my God, I had the biggest crush on Donny Osmond. Oh my God, I loved Andy Gibbs so much. And they want to talk about it because now they're no longer embarrassed. You get to an age where you're far enough away from childhood where you can look back on it with affection and with a sense of humor. And you love that little girl that loved Andy Gibb. You love her. And now you are honoring that story that she had. It's not silly. 
it's funny, <laughs> but it's also really cute and sweet. And it's one of the stops that she made on her way to becoming a grown-up. These guys were like our practice boyfriends. First, you fall in love with Andy Gibb and you kind of pretend what it would be like to be married to Andy Gibb. And it's like your first practice relationship. It's getting you ready to have a crush on the guy in your biology class. You're not quite ready for the guy in your biology class. So you go with something that's a little safer, a guy you've never met before, right? It's Andy Gibb. And that's how Kristen's second collection, Gathering Up the Crush Stories of Others, got started. Pretty soon, I'm collecting stories. Everybody's got a funny story about the poster they had on their wall or something like that, or their first concert. I have a friend who brought her Donny Osmond album to school and nobody thought it was cool enough. So she like went in the bathroom and took a crayon and wrote Donny Osmond on it and then brought it out and said, look, and he autographed it, right? There are like so (laughs) many stories like that. And I just started collecting all of these and I thought, I need to tell these stories now. And so generally what I do is I take a picture of the teen idol and a picture of the person who had that crush at the age they were when they had the crush. And I post that online together with their story. And it has been so fun, so gratifying, because what I'm learning is that people really want to be heard. They have these stories and they don't know that anybody else out there cares about this Donny Osmond story or this Andy Gibbs story. They don't know that other people had the same kind of story or the same kind of experience or the same kind of feelings. And when they put it out there and find out that other people feel the same way, everybody feels like they're seen and like they're heard and like they're part of this important club. And so it sort of becomes a feeling of belonging for all of us. And there's a really cool community that's starting. What I really like about all of this is that you're not just collecting the records, you're collecting the stories. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are some of the records that I listen to and I'm like, oh, God, this is horrible. (laughs) But it still makes me feel good because of the stories that were happening in my bedroom or my backyard or with those friends at that moment in time, right? All of those songs come with a history. The songs don't stand on their own. Some of them do. There is some really good music that over time we can look back and go, that is a good pop song. Some of those Partridge Family songs had some of the best musicians in Hollywood during that music. And it's really high quality stuff with really good hooks and really good melodies. But we were too embarrassed to say so, you know, in 1975, if you were a 16 year old boy, you can't like the Partridge Family. But yeah, there are stories that go along with these things that elevate the listening experience. Kristen's crush collection includes a story from one person she'd least expected to contribute one. I think people tend to view celebrity crushes as more of a young person's game, but I recently saw on your Instagram feed that you actually outed your mom as having had a crush on John Denver. Isn't that right? Totally. Yeah. So there's this moment in a young girl's life where she realizes that her mom has a crush. And this is usually a horrifying affair because number one, gross. And number two, it's usually on somebody that you don't think is cute at all. So many people said that their mom loved Burt Reynolds. My mom really liked Mickey Dolenz also, which to me was, that was the wrong monkey. She was not supposed to like Mickey Dolenz. You're supposed to like Davy Jones. So when you find out that your mom thinks somebody is cute who is not your dad, yeah, that can be a really weird experience. (laughs) So you've worked through this? Oh, yeah. Lots of therapy. I'm good now. (laughs) You know, I have to tell you, I found recently on YouTube a clip of John Denver introducing Sean Cassidy at the Grammys. Oh, stop it. 
oh my God, I need to see this. Well, nominated on this 20th anniversary of the Grammys for Best New Artist is this young man who's definitely going places. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sean Cassidy. Maybe you and your mom could watch it together and uh, swoon in unison. Oh my God, totally. So in this day and age when anyone can create a YouTube or Spotify playlist of pretty much any pop song ever recorded, why go to the trouble of collecting those old records once again? Can't you just queue them up on your phone or whatever? Well, for two reasons. The first one is that I prefer the sound on vinyl. There's a lot more texture on vinyl. There's almost something that you can touch. It's warmer. Sometimes it's a little bit scratchy. Sometimes I'll hear something that is so clean that I don't even like it. I'm like, where are the scratches? But it makes something a lot more real and something you can sink your teeth into. Also, it goes back to that same thing of why I don't buy online or why I don't buy a record that I wouldn't listen to on vinyl the first time. It's not that I never listen to Andy Gibb on Spotify. I do. But my preference is to listen on vinyl. And also, I'm not just listening to pop idol music. I do have really wide-ranging tastes, and so there's lots of stuff out there that I need to listen to. And sometimes if I'm on my phone or if I'm in the car, that's my time to listen to the stuff that is new. My time to listen to stuff that is old is probably at home in my living room. Meanwhile, whereas a lot of collectors don't really envision capping their collections off, Kristen does have some parameters for herself in mind. I do have limits on it. I don't want a record collection that is unwieldy. I want a record collection that I listen to, that I can dig into and I can listen to, which means you have to keep it to a certain size. Um, I did underestimate in my first message to you, I thought I had like 100 albums. It's more like 250. So, oops. But what I'm finding is that that number is a really manageable collection. I can flip through. I can alphabetize. I know where things are. I know in my head what I have. Like, I'm in the mood for Tom Jones right now, or I'm in the mood for the Beatles right now, and I know where things are kept. If I have a collection that is too large, it becomes overwhelming and you don't know what to listen to next. And actually, that's one reason that streaming is difficult for me is because the world is at my fingertips and I don't know where to begin. With my vinyl collection... I know exactly where to begin, and I can just, you know, flip, flip, flip this one. There is one Teen Idol-related subset of memorabilia that Kristen wishes she'd held on to, and it's a subset that's still well-represented in the collections of her fellow crush enthusiasts. And the natural sort of offshoot of all this for me to ask about is posters. Do you have posters near the record player of the uh, Teen Idols? No, I don't, because that is also in the same category of you're embarrassed, and so it goes in the garbage. And I see people now with their collections of posters that they still have. Oh, and I could just kick myself. I went to a Sean Cassidy concert this summer with a friend of mine, and she dug through her attic and she found all of her stuff. Her mom saved it, wouldn't let her throw it away. She found her Sean Cassidy poster. She put it up in her bedroom. And she just thought, let's see how long this lasts till my husband notices. (laughs) He never said a word. Never said a word. It's still up in her bedroom. That was in July. He's very confident. He's a very confident man. So no. Okay. So I don't have posters. That being said, I do have some wall shelves on which I put my album covers. So it's a rotating display and it's a combination of the people I was in love with 
and also the artists that I just loved. So in addition to Andy Gibb and Sean Cassidy and David Cassidy and Davy Jones and the Monkees who are on the bottom shelf, on the top shelf, I have Aretha Franklin and the Bee Gees and the Beach Boys and Prince. I do have Prince. I didn't listen to him on vinyl, but it was, it's, it's borderline, right? 1979, 1980. So I can have Prince on vinyl. And you're from Minnesota. And I'm from Minnesota, right? It's a state requirement. It is absolutely a state requirement. Okay, so I've got a little bit of a surprise for you. Yeah. Uh, in the run-up to this interview, I was thinking about how much Sean Cassidy meant to you back in the day. So I took the liberty of reaching out to him. Oh, for God's sake. Oh, my God. <laughs> I reached him through social media. Oh, my God. And I told him about my upcoming chat with you. And I was hoping that he'd offer some kind of a message to you, either about your social media project or maybe the novel you've written. And he amazingly wrote back. Oh, God. Oh, God, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm dying. Okay, I'm, I'm sweating a little bit now. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I read his letter to you? <laughs> okay, I'll read this in my best Casey Kasem American Top 40 Long Distance Dedication Delivery style. It says, Hi, Kristen. First, I hope your book sells a million copies, because it should. From what I gather, it aspires to do something rare, which is honor love. An innocent love. A love that came from a very young place, but a love that I would like to think served as a platform for future real loves at an adult level. When I was a kid myself, and there were a lot of other kids choosing me as someone to admire, I was terrified. How could I possibly live up to this fantasy of what a perfect first boyfriend or first male role model should be? And then I realized I didn't have to. I could be flawed. I could still be a kid myself, on my own path to learning what real love was. But what I could not do, and would not do, was dismiss these kids, or be cynical about them, or diminish their feelings in any way. Because I knew their hearts deserved respect. They were collectively giving me a gift few humans receive, and that was to be cherished and protected. And I do respect them, to this day. And by writing your book, you've not only honored them, you've honored our collective experience. And I'm so grateful for that, and so grateful for you. And I send you only love. Sean Cassidy. Holy s***. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally crying right now. <laughs> that is amazing he he yeah he gets me he totally gets me oh my god i cannot thank you for doing that that's an, an amazing gift you just gave me uh yeah and i will send you screenshots of my back and forth with him it's kind of oh yeah please i'll frame it and put it on my wall <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry it's taking me a little bit of time to recover <laughs> catch your breath God. So basically, that's the blurb for my book. I just print that out and put it on the back of the book. You probably could. Okay. One more thing. Okay. So you know how in those 70s commercials they used to say, but wait, there's more? Yes. <laughs> I've seen it on TV. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I really loved the video of you reading your essay about receiving the wrong Andy Gibb album at Christmas. So I took the liberty of sharing it with a mom who I knew would appreciate it. And she has sent me an audio message to share with you as a response to it. Oh, that's fantastic. Can I play it for you? Yes, please. Okay, pay close attention. 
Hey, Kristen, this is Peter Gibb Webber from Sydney, Australia, and I'm the daughter of your hairy-chested adolescent idol, Andy Gibb. I know I'm not the real thing, but I just wanted to send you a great big hello and thank you on behalf of my father and my whole musical family for your devotion to the Gibb music. I was lucky enough to get to see the YouTube clip of your live reading of your essay in Minneapolis, and I not only loved it, but I also really related to it. I think when I was 10, my great love was Boy George and Culture Club. I was in love with Boy George and thought one day we could get married and wear makeup together. So I'm probably a touch younger than you. For my birthday around that time, I got a Culture Club cassette tape and I played it until it broke. And I think I've probably still got it somewhere in my garage. And whilst I understand your disappointment in your parents' mix-up in purchasing you the Flowing Rivers album instead of the Shadow Dancing album, because hairy chests and red satin shirts are everything, I hope you've developed the musical taste to now realise that Flowing Rivers was by far the superior album. My father's hair was unfortunately not that feathery on that album cover as my mum had just tipped a bucket of water over his head. Anyway, it was great to hear your essay and to hear a little of how important my father was in your adolescence. I may just have a couple of little gifts for you to add to that record collection of yours in the near future. Bye for now. There you go. Okay, I don't have any Kleenex. (laughs) And I need to blow my nose. (laughs) (laughs) How did you do that? I did something kind of surprising even for me the other day. I was preparing for this interview and I googled Andy Gibb children, not thinking he actually had any because I knew he passed away young and didn't think he was married when he died. Oh, the secret. And then I found out he has a daughter and I saw her name, Pita, and I entered it in on social media and I found her and I messaged her. Unbelievable. And I thought she'll never get back to me. And about a half hour later, she wrote back and said, I don't usually do these kinds of things, but I love podcasts and I love the spirit of what you're describing to me. How can I help? I'm totally stunned. I'm totally stunned. I can't believe it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Does it feel weird knowing that she saw your video and you were going on about how sexy you are? Yeah, I'm freaking out right now. I'm freaking out because this, you know, his progeny. There's so much sadness around Andy Gibb, right? Even amongst women my age who, of course, when he died, we were beyond Andy Gibb. But when he died, it was that pulling us back into our 10-year-old selves. You know, we were 19 and 20 when he died and allowing us to sit there for a little while and be sad about it. And so the fact that his progeny, this girl, this woman, oh my God, I'm just, I'm, I'm dying. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And what I love is not only did she send you a message, she gave you her celebrity crush story, Boy George. Yes, I love it. And I'm totally going to use it. I'm going to have to reach out to her and see if I can post it. Yes. And you have to give me your mailing address when we're done here because she does want to mail you something. Holy sh! You'll bleep all the swear words, right? Yeah, I'll think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I do believe that this is swear worthy, though. I think I can say holy s*** when Andy's daughter's going to send me gifts. (laughs) I think that's allowed. (laughs) You know, we have this idea that, that the people that are in this industry are corporate, arrogant, bigger than life, when in actuality, they're just people. And they could be some really good people out there. Sean Cassidy is one of those people. I think Andy Gibb was too, and he couldn't handle being a famous person. And now here's his daughter who, you know, she has every right to not want to be associated with him. And she is. She's a good person. 
Yeah. And she can have a good laugh about it too. Yep. <laughs> and I got you a new pen pal. What about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we'll end on a good high note here, which Definitely. seems appropriate for Andy Gibby. Hit all the high notes. Oh, for sure. You got to sing in that Bee Gees voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking about Peta Gibb Weber. And how cool is it that her three uncles were the Bee Gees? I know. Think about that. International treasures. I had one uncle, Stan. <laughs> he wasn't an international treasure. No, he liked to go to the track. <laughs> it's kind of the same. It's the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kristen, that's everything I've got for you. It's been a ton of fun. And the next time I'm in Minneapolis, I'm inviting myself over to your house to re-experience the joy of listening to vinyl. I would love that. Absolutely. <laughs> and don't forget to give me your mailing address for PETA. Okay, I'll do that. Okay, thanks again, Kristen. Thank you, David, for everything. You bet. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. About two weeks after Kristen and I spoke, she received a package from PETA in Australia, and in it was a lot of music. There was a rare Bee Gees box set featuring tracks sung by all four Gibb brothers. There was an Andy Gibb Greatest Hits compilation. And there was the first release by the Gibb Collective, featuring the children of the Gibb brothers performing new takes on the family's music. Peta sings on two of the songs, including a song of her father's, helping to round out a collection that celebrates the past while sustaining and even deepening love for the Gibbs going forward. And speaking of everlasting loves, remember at the beginning of the show when I asked if crushes are passing fascinations or something longer lasting? In the case of Kristen Nilsson, it seems to be the latter. And what's not to love when one of the teen idols who's well represented in her record collection, Sean Cassidy, eloquently told Kristen that he refuses to take fans like her for granted, while Peta Gibb Weber, daughter of Andy Gibb, took the time to connect with her on behalf of her late father out of the goodness of her heart. Those teen idols may have won Kristen's heart over the course of an album side or two back in the 70s, but the connections she sustained with them don't appear to be fading out anytime soon. For Keeps is a production of me, David Peterkovsky. My thanks to Kristen Nilsson for sharing the fun story behind the resurrection of her record collection, as well as the tale of how she collects the memories that go into her social media project, My Celebrity Crush Story. At ForKeepsPodcast.com, you'll find a photo of Kristen with her vinyl, and there's a link to My Celebrity Crush Story in the show notes. Also, my heartfelt thanks to Sean Cassidy, who sent me his letter for Kristen while on location in New York, where he was working on the TV medical drama New Amsterdam, which he helps produce and write. Also, my sincere thanks to Peta Gibb Weber for representing her father Andy and the Gibb family so eloquently and for being generous with her time, not to mention her own collection of her father's music. The show's theme song is by the band Still Flyin', and the closing theme is by Eric Frisch. Additional music for this episode was provided by Chad Crouch, Rope Store, and Ichabod. You can visit the show online at forkeepspodcast.com or follow For Keeps on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at For Keeps Podcast. Thanks for listening to For Keeps. Until next time... Keep on keeping on. Thanks for listening to this joint broadcast of the Pop Culture Preservation Society and the Four Keeps podcast. It's worth noting that after the release of this episode, David contacted Kristen once again with an idea. Kristen, he said, 
have you ever thought about starting a podcast? She said no, but I had plans for her that she didn't know about. We had a dream, we told traveling together to spread a little love and it will keep moving on. If you'd like to hear more of the For Keeps podcast, visit forkeepspodcast.com or search wherever you listen. You'll find lots of great Gen X collector stories, including fans of Three's Company, Duran Duran, The Golden Girls, and more. Thanks again, and join us next time when we'll be getting ready for the Sean Cassidy concert on August 30th in Chicago with a very special interview with a PCPS fan whose Sean Cassidy story is both out of this world and also utterly universal. See you next time. Information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to me, the Crushologist, and Carolyn and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, I guess there's always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded at Modern Well, a woman-centered co-working space in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. We get a happy feeling when we're singing a song.